So we've got an awesome episode today. I am super excited. Derek, are you excited? Pumped. Right on. Hey, before we jump into it, um, public service announcement, as we do on the Retro Time Podcast, we don't have any sponsors and we don't make any money, but we would love it if you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, um, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, check us out on RetroTimePodcast.com, get yourself a sticker, click on that little link up at the top, get yourself some stickers, uh, that would help us out a whole lot, and uh, tell a friend, share us on LinkedIn, on your work Slack, all that stuff. And uh, we would appreciate that. So with that said, Derek. Derek. Jeremy. Derek. I'm excited about the show today, man. We've got an awesome guest. So we have a special guest. Uh, our best, most exciting, um, vibrant, vivacious guest we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he comes from a long line of Vikings. Uh, not a lot of people know this. Uh, he came here on a ship, big horn on the mm. ship. Um, yeah. His background is uh, mostly hunting boar, but we uh, he's you know he's going into elk. It's the kind of a new thing he's he's oh, getting into North American elk. It's a whole different it's a whole different um, skill set. Uh, more recently, he is uh, you know he's a uh, consultant uh, with Dan Dan North and Associates. And he is, I call him the father of BDD, behavior-driven development. That's what I do. Mm. You don't have to do that. I do it. Um, and he also has uh, a little book on Lean Pub we're going to talk about later that I'm interested to learn more about because um, I've been kind of like, you know, reading little snippets from it over the years, over the months, years, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Dan North, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I just need to point out that whole elk thing is fake news. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Fake news. Eric, what are you doing? Fake news. Hey, you know, I just, you know, I read it online. It's a Facebook post. No, it's true. It's all, it's all true. It's what all about true. the Viking stuff? Is that How true? did you hear about the longboat? I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm pretty sure I buried that one. <laughs> it was actually in an edit of your book. You, you left it in there, it and uh, it was before oh, you took it out, so I saw it. Derek actually, he, he, it's the, the, he used like the Bible code, and he uh, blocked out every other letter and then was able to interpret uh, from there. It's true. So. <laughs> My steganographic messages <laughs> that I've <laughs> Yeah. It's called the Dan Code. The Dan Code. Oh, geez. So um, <laughs> we are... So excited to have you on the show. You're someone I've been following through the years. Just your your talks, the things you've you've, you've the concepts you've come up with, your writing, everything. Just uh, I've enjoyed it over the years. So I'm just so excited to have you on the show. And the thing I'm really interested today, interested in today, is what's been kind of triggering you re- lately. What's been some of the things that are kind of like like ah on your mind lately? You know, triggering is a really interesting word. Because um, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's a lot that I'm excited about right now, but there, are, there has been one specific thing that actually triggered me. Interesting. Um, <laughs> it happened. I don't know. I don't know. If this is deliberate on your part, but this is um, this is looking at the uh, solid stuff. Have you, have you have you been following this at all? No, no. What do you mean? Uh, my, oh, my mini crusade. So, so this, this this is what happens when 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 a joke gets out of hand, right? And and when you when you when you when you suddenly encounter the humour impaired. So a few years ago, at a um, there's a there's a mini conference called PubConf. Have you come across PubConf? 
I haven't heard of that, no. It's, oh, this chap, Dylan Beatty, he's, he's just awesome. And he's, uh, he's a conference speaker, and he's a regular at a conference called NDC. Uh, NDC started in Oslo, and now it's in London, travels around the world. And, uh, and he decided, because it usually sells out, okay? It's one of these kind of big tech conferences, usually sells out. And so he said, right, what he wants to do is something for people who couldn't get in. So he made a, a lottery-only mini-conference called PubCon, that, as the name suggests, takes place in a pub after the <laughs> conference. And the only criteria, the only criteria are that you didn't go to the conference. <laughs> so if you didn't get into the conference, you're allowed to apply to pub. Oh, club. I love it. Once people get into a pub, and then he grabs a load of speakers from the event, and he drags them in, and they all do five-minute kind of oh, Ignite-style talks. So awesome. 20 slides, 15 seconds per slide, auto advance, right? So you, that, you're on, and that's it. Yeah. And, and then there's a very, very... Um, primitive stamping, clapping, and cheering scoring system at the end of which someone wins. And, and so you get a whole bunch of these talks. And I was at one of the, the early pub comps. Later on, you had kind of awards and stuff. But this was just a bunch of people in the pub. And, and Dylan said, I want to give a talk at this, at this pub comp. So at the time, I was, I don't remember why, but solid was something going on. So, um, so Jeremy, just uh, this from, from a techie background, is there's a, um, a chap called Robert Martin, Bob Martin. Yep. And he, um, sometime in the Middle Ages, he came up with a whole bunch of principles about software development. I've heard of him, yeah. And uh, oh, there you go. And, <laughs> and uh, another chap called Mike Feathers noticed that you could, if you, if you move the first, if you rearrange the first five of these in a specific order, it's spelled solid. <laughs> okay. Again, again, it was one of these, you know, reading re re every third word and deleting the, the Bob uh, code. Okay, yeah, it, it, was, it was the, the Bible Bob code. <laughs> so, so this thing solid caught on, and it's very much associated with a movement in programming called the software craftsman movement, craftsmanship. Okay, and software craftsmanship have. Uh, I, I, I'm on a podcast. It's a family podcast, so I'm not going to say a lot of things about software craftsmanship movement. It tends to be male. It tends to be young. It tends to be very bro. Uh -huh. You know, like, as with many of these movements, the intentions are good, but the execution is 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 um, somewhat. I don't know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I I I was talking about Solid, and I decided for a laugh I would do a talk about why every single element of Solid is wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna flip this thing on its head. I'm gonna go for each of these things and and just and just for giggles, like you know. And it's more of a kind of a um, a also a teaching kind of pedagogical tool, if you like. Sure. If you pull something apart and see what happens. So so I so and 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 this wasn't me being super clever or insightful. This was me being lazy because I figured <laughs> there's there's five elements of solid, right? That's one slide per thing. And then one slide to say why I disagree with it, and one slide to say what I'd do differently. That's 15 slides. Basically, the talk's just written itself. So I just yeah. pop and tail it, and I'm done. So, mm -hmm. so I did that and uh, gave the talk, and, and, it was, and it went quite well. It, was, it went across well. It was well received. And I put the slides up on speaker deck, and that was my fatal move, because then they basically came for me with pitchforks. Oh. And there were a bunch of people who weren't there, didn't have the context, just saw a bunch of slides, the zero concept, and went absolutely batty and just got really, really cross. So that's 2017. About two months ago, two or three months ago now, there was a meetup of a group called Extreme Tuesday Club, which is a very long-standing XP Agile meetup in London. 
they're now online, obviously. And they said, look, we're going to be discussing solid. It'd be great if you kind of popped in and, and, and you know, mentioned because we know, we know you've got opinions. <laughs> and there's a lovely chap, Phil Nash, who was, who was um, organizing it. And he said, it would be really cool if you could bring like some contrast, right? What would you do instead? If you don't think solid are a good set of principles, what would you do instead? You know, are there, are there, could you come up with any principles that are universally good? Oh, that's a useful challenge. So I did it. It was the end of February. So I made it spell Cupid. We just had Valentine's, you <laughs> so, so, so Cupid was born. So and then, um, and again, there's always other people's schedules, right? So I hadn't planned this. It just happened. And then I got invited to speak at a conference recently. And I thought, oh, I've got to put some flesh to this. So, <laughs> so, so then I actually gave the talk about Cupid, which is my, what I think are five properties of software that make software joyful to work with. And that was my goal. Is software is written for humans. You know, Martin Fowler's great quote, you know, any idiot can write software for a computer. A real you know, a good programmers write software for humans. So, um, so I was like, okay, can you write software that's joyful to use? So I came up with these five principles. And, and that's, so when you talk about triggers, that, that's where I've been. And I had no intention of doing anything with this. And, and it picked up steam. And I wrote the backstory of Cupid without even publishing Cupid, just why I was doing it. And that ended up on Hacker News, you know, 50,000 oh, wow. people smashed by blog. So my, my blog stats do this. They go, poink. And oh, then... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. One article every two years is basically my blogging rate. That's awesome. So, yeah, so... That's where I am right now. So, so Cupid, Cupid my, my five things I think every... Every wanna... programmer should have front of mind when they're writing software. Is it is it worth talking about today? Would you like to dive into that? I, I, would, today? I would love to. I'd be very yeah, happy. Yeah, let's do. And, and oh, by the way, uh, send us the link to uh, your solid presentation because we'll we'll link it in the show notes. We're trying. We're trying to. We try to like. Uh, <laughs> if there's a fire, we try to throw a yeah, lot of gasoline yeah. on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I can tell you. If you guys have the gasoline out back, don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's right behind that door back there. If if we if we can get your you know your uh, stats to to pop, then maybe we can get our stats to pop. And then everybody's stats will pop. Mutually beneficial stats pop. Yeah. So talk. Let's talk about Cupid. So, so Cupid, so, so there, and, and this was very deliberate, is I looked at what they call principles. So the um, uh, single responsibility principle, dependency inversion principle. And the problem with principles is they're a lot like rules, right? And so and I've got loads of examples of this. Someone gave me an example recently. A junior developer came onto their, onto their, onto a project, you know, it's fresh out of college, first job comes in and he's looking at the code base. And it's the first time he's seen this code base, first time he's worked in a team out of college. And he's, apparently he spent the first few days walking around telling everyone why the software was so bad because it was violating all these principles. There's, I'm looking at this code and it's a violation of dependency inversion. <laughs> this is a violation of like, blimey, you know, you've got these code police coming right. out of college. And, and, and this is the thing with principles is, is that they're kind of, um, they, they create what's called a boundary. And so then rather than caring about the principle, you care about policing the boundary, mm. right? Mm. And there's a, there's a whole bunch, so I'm a Christian, there's a whole bunch of really interesting research that happened around um, uh, missionaries, right? There's a, whole, there's a whole area of research called miss, miss, missiology. I've never heard of this term before. Okay, yeah, I haven't either. Missiology is the study of missionary. You know of, of how it works study of mission 
And, and there was this bunch of researchers, and they said that some missions, some missionaries are much more successful than others. Some missionaries, they go out, they do stuff, they come back, and you go back, you know, a couple of years later or a bunch of time later, and everything is just reverted, and you may as well have not been there. Other missionaries go out and create, like, entire communities, and, you know, 100, 150 years later, there's still this whole thing going on. They said, what is it, what is it about that? And this chap, whose name I can't remember because I, I need to right now and I'm on a podcast, so therefore it's gone. <laughs> uh, but it's Googleable. It's the podcast promise. Um, or or that, that goable. Other search engines are available. Um, he, so he observed that there's, there's kind of different ways of landing. Uh, I mean, in this case, Christianity, but anything that's, that's got a core. And he talks about centered versus bounded communities. So in a bounded community might be things like, so, so, so boundaries are things like maybe clothes you wear or food you eat or don't eat or words you use or rituals you observe. Those are all boundary markers. And so if you're going to be a, um, I know, let's go back to biblical times, just Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? And these are like the, the, the top ranking Jewish, whatever, were at each other's throats all the time because the other one was wrong. Right. right. <laughs> You know, because they have these boundary markers, you're not wearing the right clothing. You're not saying the right words. You're not observing the right rituals. Um, and now bring it right into today, scrum certification or any certification. You either have it or you don't. And now what we do is we fiercely defend whether or not you have this thing rather than whether it's any use mm-hmm. or what the point is. That's, bound, that's a bounded community. A centered community says, right, these are the things we care about. And you're either nearer to that center or further from that center, but you're never outside. Right. You know, there's, there's no, there's no exclusion. There's it's no just you can them. always move towards. Yeah, exactly. And there's, yeah. and it's the othering. And this is what mm. center communities kind of eliminate that othering. It's, you know, we're all on a journey. We all care about this thing. And then we can all help each other move towards this thing. Mm. And, you know, the, the obvious payoff line is that the missionaries who are creating centered communities were much, much more, uh, resilient, successful, all of that stuff. The ones that were now all legalistic and rule-based, everyone just went, you know, have they left yet? Right. Ooh, let's take off yeah. these stupid outfits. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's really funny. Um, and so, 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 um, sorry, so back to principles. Principles are very much about defining boundaries. You know, does the thing have a single responsibility or multiple responsibilities? If it has multiple responsibilities, it's wrong. And then you get into the semantics of what's a responsibility, and then, then it just all the it all kicks off. Right. So I said, okay, let's move away from response from from properties from uh, principles. What about properties? Are there are there characteristics of software that would make it nicer to use? Can I think? I mean, I've been in software. I've been actively as a programmer for twenty plus years, and as a consultant, you know, doing advising and stuff. Still hands on coding when I can. Well, that was now 30 years in total. So I've been around a lot of code. <laughs> and as a consultant, especially, I've been around a lot of other people's code. I've seen a lot of software. And some code is just joyful. And it's the, it's the right word. It's joyful to use. You go into a code base and you smile. Mm. You go, I'm going to enjoy this because I can see where everything is. I can find the stuff I need to find. I know if I'm making a mistake. I, I don't, I'm not going to get any nasty surprises from this code versus code you look at and, and ironically this ties so in with ux but it's yeah. developer ux right is is there consistency mm-hmm. are there affordances is the code is the layout of the code the structure of the code the language in it is 
is it encouraging me to do the right things? Are the right things easy? And are the hard things, are the wrong things either hard or at least signposted, right? Right. So in exactly the same way that you have with any kind of user interface. Yeah, and again, this goes right back to Don Norman. I'm a massive yeah. Don Norman fan. All right, my man. <laughs> it goes right back to affordances. This goes right back to, to guideposts. This goes right back to markers saying, you know, let's, let, me, let me take you through the software. So, and, and I started, and the, the first one for me, and I'll go through them very quickly so you can do the TLDR. C, C is composable. U is Unix philosophy. P is predictable, I is idiomatic, and D is domain-based. Right? Okay. Now, some of those are quite technical terms, so I'll, I'll go into that a bit. Yeah. So composable is this. Can I use this software with other software? It's really that simple. But when you start to scratch the surface of this, there's a lot to it. So it's not just smaller things are more composable than big things, right? Generally, yeah. I, I have less to worry about. I have less additional complexity to what I want to do. You know, there's a, a lovely Joe Armstrong quote. He says, I went for the gorilla. I went, I went for the banana and I got the whole gorilla. <laughs> and, and it was attached to the jungle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and all I wanted was the banana. So, um, you know, so, so larger things generally, if all I want is a banana and what I have to do is maintain now the gorilla in the jungle, that, that makes the cost of using that banana really high. Yeah. So, so it's, it's about the surface area of something. Right. Again, if I'm using, uh, if you look at things like, I don't know, the, the, the Apple ecosystem, I think, is very well thought through. So your mail client just does email. That's all it does, but it does it really well. Your calendar just does calendars. That's all it does. Outlook, you know, is trying to be all things to all people. And it's a bad mail client, a bad calendar. You know, <laughs> you bad at all the things. Contacts, right? to-do, notes, uh, lists. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, and, and, yeah. and I, I, you know, it's... it's, it's so easy to kick it's like 30 mm -hmm. years old or something this product yeah and i know i know product managers at, at microsoft i know people there are trying their damnedest to make to, to make it much cleaner slimmer lighter separate out all the pieces i know people are trying to do that and they've got such an uphill struggle because of the legacy that they're yeah. stuck with because underneath all of that is a thing called sharepoint and SharePoint is, again, going back to the Bible code, SharePoint is the official name for the fourth circle of hell. <laughs> well, the others have names. Number four is SharePoint. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and like Teams, Microsoft Teams. So they said, we're going to do a Zoom killer. We're going to come up with our own Zoom product. And if you look at the number of installed seats of Teams, it wipes the floor with Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. It's much, much more um, installed product than, than Zoom. Uh, it's horrible to use any of its file management features because mm -hmm. behind it is, guess what? Is it SharePoint? SharePoint. Oh. It's SharePoint. Yeah. So in Teams, if I have a group in Teams, I, I, I now have, I, I can't get that group from Teams because it's a really a SharePoint group. Mm -hmm. And so if I create a team, the team has a website, which is a SharePoint site. It has a team. Which, and so all of the permissions for Teams yeah. are tied up in SharePoint. Yeah, member group like, and stream and all like, that other stuff. It's tied all the, yeah, it's crazy. SharePoint is the portrait up in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> You know, teams is out there trying to be good looking and friendly and slick and whatever. Meanwhile, up in the up in the loft, you've got this portrait of of SharePoint. And it's getting older and grimmer and uglier. Yeah. And so where was I going with that? Um, so composability then. Mm -hmm. so if I have something with a small surface area, smaller things are more composable generally. You can over-index that. If you've got things that are too small, that now I need lots and lots of these pieces to make any sense. I've gone too far. Mm. 
And that's my beef with the word microservices, little aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, microservices suggest that my, more micro is better. You know, smaller is better. And, and it absolutely isn't. Like reach, the reach. right size to do what I'm trying to do is better. <laughs> smaller than that. And I've got to start remembering that this thing only ever works with these three other things and they all go around as a little gang. Mm-hmm. And I need to deploy them as a little gang and really they should be a single component. Right. So that's composable. <clears throat> I think about surface area. I think about dependencies. You know, if, if you're if the thing I want to use that you've written that has a small surface area, it's beautiful and it requires a logger that I don't, you know, a logging system that I don't have. I now got your thing and a logger mm-hmm. and I got your thing and a logger whose version is incompatible with a logging system I'm using. And now I can't use your thing and so on. So with composability, you think about deployability you think about how easy is it to move this thing around and to make it part of other things you unix philosophy now unix philosophy is very much composability is at its core but the the brilliant thing that the unix folks said and this is goes back to like the late 60s early 70s they're doing this is they said each command should do one thing well that's it Mm -hmm. and so the original unix had about 20 commands and each one did one thing well. So you have commands that, 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 that uh, get you information. So ls lists all of the files. And it tells you information about the files. ls has loads of flags, and you can load the switches, and you can say, tell me about how large these files are. Tell me about when they were changed. Who owns them? Tell, just tell me information about these files. Interestingly, ls doesn't know how to get that information. But you think ls lists files. It doesn't. ls goes and asks a command called stat. And stat is actually the thing that knows how to ask files and directories about themselves. Stat then hands this, this mess to LS and LS says, I'm going to make this look nice. And so, so LS is really a file information formatting command. Interesting. So, so that gives me stuff. Then I might have grep. Grep is a command. And all of these are really arcane names. And that's a UX fail. But it's like, you know, you have to learn them. And once you learn them, you. And they all have really mad history as well. So, for instance, there's a command called DD, which stands for copy and convert. And the reason it's called DD, true story, is when they wrote the copy and convert command, another team just down the hall was writing a C compiler called CC. <laughs> so CC had gone. <laughs> so, oh, so they no. called it DD for copy and convert. No way. Right? Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Grep has an equally arcane history. But Grep, what Grep does is it finds patterns in, in, in text. So you give it a whole load of text and it finds all of the lines that match um, that match Jeremy. Or it finds all of the all of the lines that match Jeremy, but only in lowercase. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and, and it, can, it can do quite sophisticated things using what are called regular expression patterns. So I can list files, I can pass them to uh, Brett, which will select out various ones of them. Then you've got commands like sort, which will change the order of lines. Um, stead, which will change the content of lines, so I could change all the words Jeremy in lowercase to Jeremy with a capital K. Mm. Right? And, and that'd be cool, because now Jeremy with a lowercase has just got fixed into your name. So, <clears throat> so, so and, and the idea is each, one of the, each of those things on their own isn't terribly useful. No. When you start composing them together, when you start what they call piping them together, the output of one becomes the input, the next one becomes the input, mm-hmm. the next one. And so because each one does one thing well, it's really easy to reason about. So, so Unix philosophy is do one thing well. And, and that, again, is surprisingly easy to get wrong. 
because you can do one thing too much. You can over engineer something. And now it's not well. You know, you think like more is better and more isn't better. Mm. Uh, Google Docs does writing documents well. Word does not do writing documents well. Mm. Word does writing documents well if you ignore most of it. <laughs> yeah. If you no use kidding. 5% of that feature set that actually does documents, it's brilliant. So what did Google do? They implemented the 5% of it that does documents <laughs> in a browser, and now you don't need to install gigabytes of software. How about that? Yeah. So, so doing something well is understanding when to stop as well. So you mm -hmm. want, um, and this goes back to, you know, you want the thing, the whole thing, and nothing but the thing. And the nothing but the thing is actually surprisingly tricky. That's right? <laughs> <laughs> hard to do. Yeah. That's your you. P is predictable. And the way I'm positioning, I'm trying to position something that's more generalizable than testable. So people talk about software being testable. It's, it has to have tests. It has to be testable. I disagree with that. There's a wonderful Stack Overflow answer from Kent Beck where he talks about um, uh, how, much, how, much, how, many, how much testing should you write? How many automated tests should you write for your code? And his brilliant answer is as little as I can get away with. Right? <laughs> and, and all of these like TDD zealots went, you can't say that, Saint Kent. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, <laughs> I can. Many of us can, I can. I get paid for tests, I get paid for code. I get paid for code that works. So I write as yeah. little tests as I can, yeah. two tests as I can to get me there. So... And, and also, you know, I was writing software 20 years before TDD really took off in, in our world, you know, in the sort of 90s and, uh, and the noughties. It took a long time before this stuff happened. And I've worked on what I would call, I mean, really joyful code bases before that. Really well structured, really well um, thought through. I remember, and I keep going back to this story because it had such an impact on my, I think on, on how I think about writing software for other people. I was writing, I was writing some code. I was, I was working on a system and there was a whole team of us working on it. And, and I guess it was a kind of shared code type world, but there was a bug and there was a bug in some really detailed technical image processing software that I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about this domain. Mm -hmm. And I got handed this bug. Well, can you, can you, can you go look at this thing? <laughs> and I went to look in this thing, like I was probably 20 something, 21, 22, terrified. You know, I've got, oh, got this, this big, well, high profile product. So I go into this code base expecting to be, you know, intimidated by the awesome cleverness of it. And it was the opposite. I was like in awe of how just navigable it was. Like I looked at this thing and within less than 10 minutes, I'd found where the bug probably was because the code was going, if you're looking for this stuff, it's over here. If you're looking for this stuff, it's over here. It's really. No, this isn't there, it's there. Signpost, signpost, signpost. And I was like, oh, this is easy. Found where the bug probably was. And it was one of these situations where someone had put like a less than or equal instead of a less than or something like that kind of comparator type thing. And I, and I changed it and I built it and I was pretty confident that I'd nailed it and I tried it and it worked. And I just went, whoa. <laughs> one day, one day I want to be able to write code like that. You're powerful. Man. I want to be able to write code that is that obvious to someone who is unfamiliar with it. And it hadn't occurred to me that the, that the, that the emotion I was feeling was joy. I think it was more like relief. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. I thought it was going to be here for weeks on this bug and I was there for 20 minutes. And, and it is. And so, uh, you know, a, a big part of um, predictable is can you write code that's really obvious? really obvious where it goes. And yeah, tests can help with that. And uh, automated examples and BDD and those things can help with that. 
But the point isn't BDD and the point isn't TDD. The point is navigability. The point is predictability. Mm -hmm. The point is that this stuff's obvious. Yeah. And you can look around at it and go, yeah, I, I, I see where this goes. And likewise, if you're adding a new thing, where should I add this new thing? Over here in the only place the new thing could possibly be. <laughs> because this is so clearly laid out that the new thing lives there. And you go, yeah. okay, I, I'm pretty sure that this is where the new thing goes. Um, and so, and there's a bunch more stuff to predictable as well. I think predictable is probably one of the biggest ones for me, or broadest at least, um, churches. But you've got predictability of, of how it runs as well. So your yeah. kind of operability, your um, your runtime heuristics, metrics, all of that kind of stuff. So predictable in its behavior, as well as predictable in its structure, uh, um, predictable in its in what it does, predictable in how it does it. So things like response times, things like um, resource usage, things like, you know, it's all those runtime characteristics. Again, if we're able, so, and, 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 and I'll, let me re, re, uh, reiterate, for each of these composable Unix-like Unix um, predictable, these are centers. So we can look at some code, right? Or look at some design. Yeah, we can look at, some, look at an artifact, look at a thing we're trying to build as part of our product and say, can we make this more dot, dot, dot? Can we make this more composable? This is doing too much stuff. Can we shave something off this, right? Can we make this more Unix-like, right? If this is doing just one thing, what's the one thing it's doing? And can we test every single facet of this and say, do you belong in here? Do you mm -hmm. really belong in here or do you belong in another tool that we can compose? Because it's number one, right? That's great. So we can make something yeah. more and more um, Unix-like, more and more does one thing. And then predictable, can we make this more predictable? We can make this more predictable by making it do less. So all these things start to kind of intertwingle, yeah. So predictable in terms of behavior, predictable in terms of performance characteristics. Um, I is idiomatic, right? And this is, this is I'm looking at Jeremy now. This is like, this, this is an absolute design yeah. classic is, you know, and you can look at Lotus Notes is the historical an antithesis of this. Is you know, the, the Lotus <laughs> Notes team said we will make we will make notes look the same on any platform, and they thought that was a really important design goal, and and the rest of the world said no, no. On Windows, you make it look like Windows. Right. On a Mac, you make it look like Mac. What you do, you make it look familiar. Yep. You don't make everyone have to learn all of your design. Decisions that are different from how all of these other operating environments work, just yep. so they can use your stupid tool, yep. and they won't, and they didn't. <laughs> right, and, and you see it again and again. And so, you know, and this is why I think design guidelines and and um, design systems are so important. Is I want to know what idiomatic is. Right, I want to know. I want to know how we do things around here. And from a programming perspective, from a code perspective, again, I've, you know, I've done a bunch of other jobs in the past. Do I come into a new job and write code like I did in my last place? Or do I bother out of respect learning how you do it here? And I might not disagree. I might not agree. Right? I might have some strong um, uh, objections to some of the things you're doing. But the first thing I'm going to do is learn how you're doing things here. And then maybe once we're all kind of pals and getting on and stuff, I might start to challenge some of this. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful principle called Chesterton's fence. Have you come across Chesterton's fence? I have not. No. no so G.K. Chesterton, it <clears throat> turns out, was brilliant at everything. I know he was a poet. He wrote a brilliant poem called The Donkey. And 
but he was a he was a writer. He was a journalist. He did. If you look him up, he's done like. He's, but but he he wasn't nearly as famous as he should have been. Anyway, <laughs> what one of his um, observations or thought experiments is is become known as Chesterton's fence. He says you're walking along in the countryside and you see a fence built across a road. Right? There's no reason that fence should be there. What do you do? Mm. Well, clearly you remove the fence. The fence is across the middle of a road. That's insane. And he said, well, well, no, right? That fence is there for a reason. You just don't know the reason. Ah, yeah. It's so in other words, before road, you right. get to decide to have an opinion about the fence, you need to go find out why the fence is there. Right. Once you know that, you may end up going, actually, that's a pretty good reason to put a fence in a road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, I'm down it. there with the road fences. Yeah, no, you guys have it. Right? There's actually a man-eating but, monster. On the, there's a man-eating monster that, that, has a, that has an irrational fear of fences. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we managed to keep it at bay just using this fence. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the lasers didn't work. Who <laughs> <Uno>. knew? Who <laughs> knew? We've got three more villages. No, and, and so, so this is principle. So idiomatic is like, come in, find out why we do things in this way. And, and there's this brilliant uh, Grace Hopper line. She says, you know, the one excuse that I will never tolerate in any context is this is how we've always done it. Mm. Right? If the reason that we've got this fence across the road is, well, every time we've always built a road, we put a fence across. That's, you know, that's how Mikey did it when, he, when, we, when we first started doing this. And now we all build, and you're like, really? Let, let's try doing some non-fence roads, right? Let's just, let's just see how it goes. Um, but often, often there's a reason. Uh, and Sam Newman has a lovely quote, Sam Newman, the uh, um, DevOps chap, another ex-Thoughtworks colleague. Um, he says, he, he said, and this is a long time ago and it stuck with me, it's better for things to be consistently wrong than inconsistently yeah. anything. Right. <laughs> you know, we're looking at the way this whole is an app we're working on, a product we're working on for a client many years ago. And the path to live was an absolute train wreck. But at least it was the same path to live everywhere. And so, right, because it's consistent, we know that any improvements we make, we can make everywhere. Whereas when you get the situation where you've got, you know, 10 different things and they're all different and they're all arbitrarily different. Man, you've got a whole, whole nother set of problems. Yeah. Right. right. So that's your idiomatic. So idiomatic is in, and again, idiomatic is um, there's layers to it. So idiomatic, if I'm using a language like I don't know, Python, or I'm designing for iOS, right, there are idioms in those worlds. There are kind of global idioms, globally accepted idioms, or globally enforced idioms. But then I'm writing my Python, my, my iOS app um, in a bank, and so I look at the rest of the banking suite. Because I, you know, I'm a brilliant iOS developer, and I really, you know, I swallowed the guidebook, and I look at their banking app, and it's a nightmare, right? Dreadful. It violates all these things, and I can go around telling them how they're doing it wrong, or I could make my thing look like their thing, so that at least our customers aren't having shock every time they move between these two parts of the app. Right. Right. If the payment screen is using a drop down, and the the, the a loan screen is using a, a, a text field for the same thing, they're like. What, why is it a text field? What, 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 what don't I know? Is there a secret thing I should type in here? Is there more Bible code? What's going on here? So, um, so I'll make it consistently as bad as your thing. So at least now our customers only have to have one horrible set of experiences. 
Right. Now I'll work with the design folks and the UX folks and the developers and, the, and, and see if we can't make this whole mess a bit nicer. Right. Right. So it's idiomatic locally. Uh, and the last one then is domain based and domain is about language. So domain and again, language can be design language as well as um, uh, spoken language mm -hmm. or written language. So domain language is something like if I'm in a, um, well, here's an example. We're talking on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Zoom has calls and breakout rooms and, and whatever else, right? Um, let's say I want to use Zoom for something else, right? And everyone is repurposing this general purpose app to do lots of very specific things, right? I might be having Zoom classes. My kids might be having Zoom classes. Now a teacher comes on there and kids come on there and teachers and kids don't have um, gallery view. And teachers and kids don't have uh, breakout rooms. That, that's not school language. Mm -hmm. what, what would school language be for those things? Right? Right. Because if, that's, if it has school language on it, classroom, enter mm -hmm. classroom, mm -hmm. you know, work in small group, right? Yeah. That, that suddenly that domain language conveys a lot more meaning. And likewise in the code, right? If the code has, is, if it's all just generic language in the code, I don't know what it's doing. I don't know who it's serving. And if I suddenly discover that this is actually part of a classroom app or part of a, uh, a trading app or part of a whatever it might be, I'm now mapping in my head continually between these two domains. So I, I, I talk to Jeremy because he's my domain expert. And, sure. and, I, and I learn something about, um, you know, about uh, um, public transit systems that we're writing a system for. And I go to Derek and he's my development lead. And now I translate all of this into database stuff for him. Right. I've just done both of them a massive disservice. Yeah. Right. What I do instead is I get Derek and Jeremy in a room together and then Derek's using that public transit language in the code. Right. Right. And so the code itself is domain based. And now when Jeremy says, do you know what? It'd be really great. Really trams are just kind of like, buses that run on railway lines so maybe there's something about the domain of i don't know track maintenance that's common between trams and trains mm -hmm. right or something about weather you know that's common or traffic um uh, patterns that's common to trams and buses and now we can and so while you're having that while you're having that conversation jeremy derek is mapping it in his head so i know where the, i know where that code is yep i know where that code is and what i need to change and I know that I can combine the tracks element of the trains and the trams into the tracks subsystem, right? And all the track maintenance subsystem. And it turns out that the trams and the trains code can all benefit from the track. I'm making this domain up. I know nothing about yeah. public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's uh, <laughs> not. what I mean. It's it's what you're doing, and this is known as domain-driven design. So we want to make the domain language ubiquitous within the code base. That's a well-trodden path. The other part of the, or another aspect of domain based is um, where we want to structure the code itself. So typically, and I get cross with this and um, <laughs> Rails is a big culprit um, for this, but there, there's others. It's just that Rails became so popular that it almost, that this style became ubiquitous, which is that you'll have in your, you open up, you crack open a code base, you clone it or whatever, you look at it. And you've got a, full, a directory full of controllers, a, a directory oh. full of views, a directory full of uh, helpers. That's my favorite. <laughs> helpers, which is random junk. I don't know where it is. Yeah. A directory full yeah. of model, you know, model code. What does model code what does it even mean? 
And 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 so I right, okay, well, I want to go and let's let's look at that tracks subsystem. Where's that track subsystem? Well, it's here and here and here, and it shares a bit with there, and it's over. I, that's not joyful. That's painful. Right? You're making code painful to work with. I'm using an editor. The editor has a very, very good search function. I can put stuff anywhere and find it. Mm. So why not structure the code by the domain? Why not when I open it, I can see the tracks code is all in one place. The trams code is all in one place. The timetabling code is all in one place. Because the chances are, right, Jeremy's had a brilliant insight about timetabling. Mm -hmm. I'm like, right, we should go do that. We should go do live timetable feeds and live uh, message updates. Where's that going to be? Oh, well, now you have to look in the controllers and find the controller and realize that this controller is shared with these five. And of course, you don't realize that. You have to know that. That's all tacit knowledge. Yeah. There's nothing in the code that will guide you to that. There's no markers. There's no. <laughs> and right. so instead, we so say, well, if you make the code itself domain based, and here's a here's a fun thing. Here's a here's a, here's a free one for you, Derek. It makes a heck of a lot easier to deploy. Yeah. <laughs> Your build scripts are like that component over there. That component over there. A lot less pattern matching. A lot more scooping up directories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a very good. Very good. And, and so you structure your code, and again, it comes. This ties right back round. If I'm if I have domain-based structuring of code, my components are basically there. My components, my code is structured into the components that make up the code, and you get this lovely circular sort of energy. So there you go. I love it. Well, that's, like so much... that's, that, that, that's cute. But each <laughs> one of those again is is trying to be a center. It's yeah. trying to be a thing you can move towards. These are things I want to have put up when we go back to an office. These are these are posters that should be on the wall. Like, you know, this is stuff that like everybody should there see. There is a motivational poster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's so much to unpack here. I I love um the approach here treating um you know, the des developer experience is like sort of the top of your mind, right? I mean, you're you're designing or writing your code because you know that someone else would be in here at some point in the future and probably will have very little context about any of it it might be you and, it might be right. you in it might even be you but you have no idea why did i do it I've this way I don't, yeah. six months ago me right yeah. six months ago me is an idiot six yeah. months ago me yeah. knows i've nothing. learned so much <laughs> in the last six months. so it's 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 I, i've had this thought a lot where you are really writing your code for your self in the future who will be lazier no less and have less context of the situation not even, no, and like, he or she is older and you know the gray matters things go you know, slower trust well, me i know, you know uh -huh. i used to be so much smarter <laughs> much less wise yeah but a lot wiser, smarter. But not as smart. I love that. do more right things when you're smart rather than wait till later when you're tired and lazy and you have more kids and they're coming in and in the middle of podcasts you know, i i i I, you know, I i need to put this on the record um I, I uh, probably the best code I've, no, I, I have seen not just zero correlation between age and code quality, but a robust counter correlation. I've seen amazing code written by people of all ages and shocking code written by people of all ages and experiences. So <laughs> yeah. let me just put that on the record. But yeah, no, so, so, but you are, you're designing for future you. Yeah. And you're, you're you're trying to make this you know all future like empathy you yeah. people who will come along after. So your thought experiment about about the fence. This is something I've been thinking about a lot, and it drives me nuts. Um, but UX designers specifically, we talk a lot about empathy for our users. 
We talk about you know wanting to understand the users and their pain points and wanting to empathize with them and understanding their situation and everything else. But what a lot of sometimes younger UXers out of school think they know everything. They come in and they, they have zero empathy for their team. They have zero empathy for the developers, zero empathy for the product managers who are telling them they can't do something, or you know, zero empathy for the developers who are saying there are technical constraints or, or whatever it is. And I, I think if, you know, this is something that I, I ask um, younger UX designers a lot, what's, what's more important than designing a really great product? The answer is shipping a really great product. <laughs> <laughs> right? You can design a beautiful product, but if you can't work with your engineering team or your product managers or anybody else mm. to get it built, why'd you do it? It was a waste of your time. Um, and, and I think this is sort of that same thing here. Uh, empathy for the rest of your team. You know, just like you said, there's a reason yeah. why that fence is there. Let's figure out why that fence is there. It could have been a perfectly valid reason. Maybe that fence was there before the road, but legally we couldn't remove the fence and so we're working you know or whatever there's somebody there there's somebody we're blocking something we, we, you know we maybe we don't want you to go down that road yet because it's not finished so you know there's um I, I think that idea there is is really compelling and i think if everybody in general had more empathy for the rest of their team we'd probably be we'd probably be better off oh there's uh, actually you, you reminded me of something that um I, I came across a beautiful quote and it's been attributed to muhammad ali i don't have a source but it says uh it, it says um, it's useful to change your perspective mm -hmm. so that you realize that it's not the deer crossing the road but the road crossing the forest mm, yep. Jeez. Whoa. <laughs> yeah that deer has been crossing that road long before there was it's a road been crossing that, that, the deer has been doing that forever yeah. <laughs> wow wow <laughs> so um, I've got it so I've just got to share what my, my favorite design quote um, which I, I, I'm very surprised, Jeremy, you haven't come across. I got to see Bill Buxton um, giving a talk a few years ago, who's um, the, I don't know, some fancy title of basically God of Design at, at Microsoft. He's a <laughs> very, very famous um, design researcher. And he opens his talk. He says, so what is user experience? And you go, you go, you go, and you go well, where's this guy? Yep. What is you? And he goes, invites the audience and the people talk about, you know, stuff. And, and then he pauses, he says, user experience is the experience a user has. That's it. <laughs> and like, it's not the color, it's not the design, yeah, it's, just, it's yeah, not right, the layout. Right. The, the experience a user has when they use your product might be delight. It might be frustration. It might be resentment, right? It might be resigned indifference. When you design a product, you are creating that future experience for that person. And I was, I, I had a Satori moment. <laughs> I was enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it as being that obvious. Yeah. yeah. You, you, what, the code you're writing, and especially for internal apps, right? Anytime you're writing an internal business app, they are without doubt the worst quality <laughs> user interfaces sure, yeah. you'll ever see. When there was a famous story recently, was Citibank lost $500 million. Oh, it was like almost a bill, it was like eight or 900. But I, yeah, okay, but no, it was, yeah, I was also talking about the money. Yeah, it was a lot. Because there was a user interface that yeah. was so poor the that even three right. levels of manager who was yeah. supposed to know this thing didn't know that you're supposed to put the same value in those two fields and mm -hmm. check those two boxes and blah. It was impenetrable. Yeah. And so yeah. much business software is like that. And you're writing the stuff that someone is going to spend their entire working day sitting in front of. Yeah, yeah. 
and you should feel ashamed. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is one of the things I, so Derek and I, we both do enterprise software for a big giant multinational corporation. And um, one of the things that I love about enterprise design over some kind, you know, working for a startup that does a chat app or something is just like you said, can we make someone's day better? Yes. And less yes. stressful. Because I think about this, like when I was a kid, this is a little backstory. When I was a kid, my dad worked for GM, another big giant corporation. And some days he would come home, great mood. Some days he'd come home, slam the door. We're like, stay away from dad. He's in a terrible mood. And he was in a terrible mood because of work. Something happened at work. Something really frustrating thing happened at work. And so I think about, this is so lame. It's so cheesy. But I think, can I make that little kid's day better so that their dad, when they come home, isn't in Jeez. a terrible mood? Right? Can that I is make? Cheesy. That is absolutely I... the essence of. Yeah. So a good friend of mine who's worked, he's, he's a serial um, investment bank tech guy. Been there for like I don't know, twenty-five years or something, thirty years. And and he was working in a huge German bank, huge German investment bank, and it's easy to get lost in those places, you know, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And you know, you're working on a system that does stuff here and gets stuff here and blah blah blah. And and uh, and I said, I had this conversation with him one day. I said, so. You've been doing this for years. Why, why, why do you do this? Why do you, what, what, what motivates you to get up out of bed every day and come in and carry on doing this? He said, he said, even though I've been doing this for a long time, I still think every day that if I make this system a little bit better at this German bank, there's a German housewife somewhere in Frankfurt who's going to go to an ATM. They're going to be able to get some money out and it's all mm -hmm. going to work. And all of that stuff's going to be there because we got some data out of system A and put it into system B and didn't lose any of it. And he's always thinking of what's the goal here? Yeah. Who's the human being yeah. whose life we impact? Yeah. And it's just such a powerful motivating force when you're up against the uh, yeah. the impenetrable frozen middle in a in a large enterprise. And Derek, you probably I mean from the engineering side, I know I've seen this from the UX side, this everything we talked about in Cupid. To me, it's just like, oh my God, we, that's every, every day. That's everything we do, you know, well, like all this what, stuff. And it's just these big, I feel like the bigger the corporation, the easier it is to break all of these rules, you know? Yeah. Um, to have them systemically yeah. kind of impossible. Yeah. You know? And, and so, and so there's, and, and again, for me, it's, it's fractal. That's right. You know, whatever layer of influence you've got, whatever sphere of influence you've got, if you're an engineering manager, if you're a developer, if you're a tester, if you're a CTO, right, CIO, whatever your sphere of influence is, your sphere of impact is, if you're a product manager, a product designer, looking at these principles, can I look at this and can I make can I can I make my product more composable? Can I make it play nicer with other products? Whether that product is a, a bunch of software or whether it's a finished thing that's part of a suite. Um, can I make it? Can, can I make it do less and therefore be more useful and play better with your stuff? So something like you know, and and you know, and the obvious counter example is like your your cell phone now does hundreds and hundreds of things, and it really doesn't. Yeah. Your cell phone does one thing, which is runs apps. It runs an app, right? Apps <laughs> yeah, do loads and loads of things. Right, the apps. But yeah, you can do. It does this one thing really well, which is runs yeah. apps. And obviously does the making a phone call, but that's almost a vestigial feature. Which is days. also an app. Really. Which is an app. Well, it's got the radio. It, it, it runs apps. It's a little operating yeah. system. It runs apps. And because the the main proponents, you know, your Android and your, and your um, iOS, are, have very clear 
policy guidelines around how things should look and behave, your experience as a human being interacting with this supercomputer in your pocket isn't one of terrified <laughs> overwhelm. <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's interesting about that, you know, Google didn't take that seriously for a very long time. No, you no. Know, if you if you look at iOS, it's been consistent from the beginning. But if you look at Android, there's no consistency, even if it's just icons. I mean, you could do anything, any shape, any color, any size. I mean, they, you know, they didn't even have specs on size. So some 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 icons would be small, some would be big, some would be in the shapes, same app. Some would be, yeah. in the same app on the same screen. Right. And so, <laughs> I mean, you know, the interface, like icons. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just recently in the last few years, to be honest, that that Google with material and, and the introduction of that they, they started to standardize that. And now you start to see a larger adoption of Android, which is, you know, not surprising, you know, large adoption in the United States. I think globally, it's maybe different because of the, you know, Apple is generally more expensive, but um, within the states. You know, and and Western countries, like maybe can afford it. Third, you know, uh, first world countries, whatever. Um, they're starting to buy Google phones, <laughs> Android phones, because they they are consistent and they do have a better experience and it's more polished, and that comes across. You know, um, that well, experience and, is definitely less stressful now than it was. You know, five six years ago, seven years ago. Well, and, and you and you again, it was, it's 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 all about the, it's all about provenance. Like, so the iPhone came out of a design company. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Android phone came out of an advertising company that does search. Yeah. Yep. Right? And and you, you look at the design of their products and it's an absolute mess. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is an absolute mess. There's massive inconsistency. And every now and then they'll go through some huge rebranding exercise, you know, and design Twitter melts down and kittens <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and whatever. But um yeah, again, from a developer experience, they uh, Google will frequently just um, uh, retire APIs. They'll just kill things off. Right. You know, and, and I've seen, and this isn't this isn't apocryphal. I I I I know people who built business models, you know, built small businesses around thing, yeah. a particular, you know, adding value to a particular Google API that then they just switched off. What am I going to do now? Oh, nothing. You just shut your business down. No, it doesn't exist anymore because we just shut yeah, down that yeah. that particular Maps API or that particular access to a, a type of search. No, we don't do that anymore. No warning, no deprecation, just off. Right? And and developers get antsy about that. <laughs> sure. And say what you like about Amazon, but when you build against their APIs, they're likely to be there next week. Right. And so so there's there's definitely the design aesthetic goes all the way through. No, I'm not an iOS developer. I know a lot of iOS developers, and generally the APIs are reasonably, you know, consistent and manageable. The uh, the Xcode, which is Apple's kind of uh, IDE, is again I haven't used it. Apparently, hilariously bad, right? It's a hilariously <laughs> bad editing environment, which which really surprises me for a company that is designed first. So to sum up, kind of what we talked about today a little bit, it's like. Operating outside of absolutes is is a is a great way to actually improve based off everything that Dan said today, it, to improve the way that we improve our environment, um, is if, if, in our systems, the way we work, because uh, because if you say how X is it, you can make progress. If you say are we exactly, uh, is it X? You know, like, like it's, if it's an absolute thing, it's very difficult to make progress because you have, could, could have barriers in place for years that prevent you from getting 
over that fence. Yeah, I was just thinking that too, because as we were talking through this, I'm thinking, you know, there's a scale. There's like, uh, and I'm thinking back to, to, you know, enterprise level work and like a spectrum. Yeah, how yeah how how awful a lot of it is. It's never. It's not going to get there overnight. A lot of these legacy things that are probably not going to be touched until. Who knows when, if they ever get touched at all. Um, this is sort of a spectrum, and you can say, is it really important that this one isn't here? No? Okay, well, let's move on to the next thing. Or you can say, it's important. Let's fix it. Let's let's get back. Let's get it closer. And, and you're absolutely right. There's one, one, one again, this is, this is new, right? This is new stuff. So one possible application that I would love to see in the wild, I, certainly the way I, I, I already think about this, I just hadn't really articulated it, is I'll use it as an overlay. So I'll look at a situation, a code base, a product, whatever it is, how composable is it? How Unix-like, how, 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 how opinionated, how much, how much one thing does it do? How predictable is it, both in terms of what it does and, and how it does it? Um, how idiomatic, both in terms of the wider world and how we do things here, and how domain-based is it? And for each of those, you know, again, as you say, it's a, it's a spectrum, so there'll be somewhere on there. And then in this context, with this team, with this product, in this environment where we are right now, which of these matters the most? Mm. Which of these, if we went after it, would give us most improved quality of life, you know, for ourselves, for the folks downstream, for our stakeholders, for our customers, whoever it is, which of these things, you know, it's far too busy. This interface is too busy. It's not Unix-like. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Let's let's make it much more appealing. Let's just take all the craft away. Yep. You know, what, what, what did someone actually come here to learn? They came here to learn where my order is. They don't care what the order number is, when it was placed. How da, 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 da. Right. They, you know, where, where, where's my order? When am I getting it? You're getting it Tuesday. Thanks. I'm done. That's all I wanted. Green was the word Tuesday and huge. Right. right? And, and so can, can you pair it back and the less is more thing? Can I make this more predictable? Sometimes when I see this icon, it means it's a drop-down selector. Sometimes when I see this icon, it's actually a button that's got the same design on it. And I go to press the, what I think is a drop-down and a new screen appears because it's a submit <laughs> button. Like, that's a real surprise, yeah. unpleasant yeah. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, it's so, so, so the predictability is part of its principle of least surprise as well. Yeah. So can, you know, can we look at the thing we've got with this overlay, we're just going to keep it overlay and say, which of these, we can't boil the ocean. Let's not do all, the, all these things because we'll do none of these things. Which, which of these dimensions would it be most useful to track towards next? Yeah, absolutely. We'll keep asking ourselves that until we go, yeah, this is joyful. This is joyful to work on this product. It's joyful to use. The product. I love that. That's what we should be striving for more. Is if, if, I feel like if it's a joy for us to work on the product, that will probably translate down or trickle down to the users. We really enjoy it, you know. Um, IntelliJ IDEA, which is a, um, originally a Java IDEA, does a whole lot of other languages now they've got in there. From the very beginning, and I've got you know no uh, what's there, no interest to declare here. I'm just a very very happy customer. From the very beginning, it's been used by the people who write it. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're really fussy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> if anything in there is slightly annoying, they'll fix it. Yeah. And then you suddenly you, you go in there, and, and there are other IDEs that do, if you get the feature list, they do pretty much exactly the same thing. Right. But one of them is just like, it's, it's just an extension of yourself, and the other one is a tool you have to use. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I love that. Absolutely.
All right. So oh. we have had you for a little bit. Do you have to run? I really should. Yeah. I, I... Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So uh, with that said, so we will we will let you go. Um, but um, thank you for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. Um, this did go longer than we expected, but I appreciate it. It was a really great conversation. <laughs> That's my fault. Um, Derek, you got anything else before we head out? No. Um, All right. Wish best of luck to your uh, your the pets in your home now and in the future. Yeah. And uh, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. It was enlightening. Great talk to you. Fun. All the things we were hoping it would be, it was. So right fantastic. On. Thank you so yeah, much. Dan. All right. All the best to your young percussionist. All right. <laughs> thank thanks, you Dan. so much. So, Dan, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, don't forget, everybody out there, check us out on RetroTimePodcast.com. Uh, like, subscribe, wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend. Leave a five-star review. Derek will write you a song. Get yourself some stickers at RetroTimePodcast.com slash stickers. And uh, tell a friend uh, how much you're enjoying the show and how much you're getting out of it. Until next time. Thanks, Ed. Bye now. We'll see you. All right, dude, that was awesome, man. I, I was going to ask him about uh, uh, and, uh, about uh, Meghan Markle or Kate Middleton. I was going to ask him the stuff yeah, I asked. I, uh, I'm, really, I'm almost happy we didn't talk about the fact that he's British too much. I told him I had a Marshall amp back there for him. Yeah. Um, and brought it in. But uh, he was, I mean, I told you that dude was serious business. He knows his shit. <laughs>